All right, church. Well, I'm thankful to be back in the pulpit this Sunday. Uh, last Sunday, we had a guest uh, preacher, Raymond Choi, one of the missionaries that we support in his work overseas. Um, and I am I'm thankful to be able to jump back into the book of Philippians with you. Uh, if you are, are new or visiting, maybe you haven't been here in a while, we are coming to the end of the book of Philippians. Basically, we've been walking through this book line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter since the beginning of July. And today we find ourselves in chapter 3, starting in verse 17. We're going to be finishing up chapter 3. That's going to be on page 981 if you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles around the room. And by the way, if you do not have an ESV Bible or you don't have a Bible at all, uh, please feel free to take one of those with you. Or maybe you know somebody who's in need of a Bible. Uh, we want to be a church that gives out Bibles. Uh, we want people to be able to have the Word of God as much as possible. So if you know yourself or know somebody in need, please take one of those with you on your way out. Now, as you are turning there, let me ask you a question. When you lay your head down at night, when you are trying to go to sleep, what are the questions, what are the concerns, what are the stress points, or what is the hope that you're thinking about? Those closing moments before you fall asleep, right? When you're trying to get your mind to, to turn off, so to speak. When you're trying to just kind of relax, what are those, those last pressing thoughts that are running through your mind? Because what seems to grab your attention in those last moments is often very important for where your heart or where your hope lies. And although it is difficult at times to think about, or we ask ourselves why we think about the things we do, I think it's important for us. I think it's important for us to really know what is my mind's eye fixed upon when I have no distractions, right? Maybe when I'm finally putting the phone down. When I'm finally letting my own thoughts actually be heard instead of letting somebody else's thoughts just kind of crowd my own mind. Now, although I think that we have certain cultural stressors, right, going on in just the time and places that we live, this idea of what is was stressing you out or what is exciting you or what is your hope in is not new to the human heart. In fact, this is something we've been dealing with since day one. And Paul, in the book of Philippians, where we're going to be looking at today, I think Paul is going to be trying to encourage the church in Philippi and us by extension of what we can have our hope in, what we can be thinking about in those closing moments of our day. And as the Apostle Paul does so well, he gives us great gospel hope in those closing moments, never leaving us without joy and hope that will come if, if we wake up in the next morning, or if we're with the Lord. But before we actually look at the text, as always, I'm just going to simply pray one more time. Um, I ask that as I pray for you, you guys would pray for me. I'm going to pray for our kiddos, because we need the Lord's help as we walk through this passage of Scripture again. So let's go ahead and do that. Well, Father, I do want us to just take a moment to pray to you one more time. Not because... I'm trying to fill in any kind of gap or trying to hit any kind of quota of prayer on our Sunday morning, but simply because we can't pray enough. We can't ask for your help enough. And God, I know that every single person in this room this morning needs you just to bring 
this text of Scripture to illuminate it in a way that we can just behold the truths that it contains. God, I also pray for our, our kids in the, in the classroom across the hall. God, I pray that as they're just learning about the same promises, the same hope that we're learning at, about this morning, God, that you would be with those teachers and with those kids. And that for every single one of us, Lord, that we ask that we would walk out of this building today loving you far more than we first walked in. That's our prayer. And we need you for it. So in your mighty name, Jesus, we ask. Amen. Amen. All right. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17, is what we're going to be picking up this morning. And let me go ahead and just read that for us. Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. We're thankful for God's word. And God, we ask that you would write its eternal truth upon our hearts as we look at it. Okay, so uh, since I was not in the pulpit this last week, I want to give us a quick recap of where the Apostle Paul has been in chapter 3. Because when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church, much like when you guys write letters, right, to your families or to your friends, uh, you're usually probably not writing chapters and verses in there, right? And, and Paul didn't. The original, these chapter and verses distinctions that we have were added later on. They were added later on just so we could kind of find our text easier. So as when people didn't really have uh, or were new to having Bibles in their own language, uh, the pastor our preacher was able to kind of designate where they could go to see this, kind of putting addresses on, on all of God's word. But when we do that, and, I, and I, I'm fully in support of having these chapter and verses, but sometimes what can happen is we can lose the flow of thought as we walk through this. Because all, obviously we're picking up in verse 17, but Paul has been making an argument since chapter 1. And even in particular, in chapter 3, he's been trying to communicate something to the church in Philippi. And so I would remind you, at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul takes on uh, this group of people. He's letting the church know that there's this group of people, he even calls them dogs, as a kind of a discriminatory way of how he felt about them. There's this group of, this kind of, this Jewish sect known as the Judeers. They were a group of people saying they were Christians, but they were coming into the churches that Paul planted and saying, yeah, 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 I want, you guys should absolutely believe in Jesus and his work on the cross. But that's not all. It's Jesus plus making sure that you're obeying the Mosaic law, that you're obeying certain things of what it means to be Jewish. In particular, they were saying that you have to be circumcised. That it was, it was Jesus' work on the cross plus your circumcision. Or it was plus you adhering to the dietary restrictions that we see God give to the people in Israel at a specific time in the Old Testament. And Paul 
being raised Jewish, being a part of that, the Jewish religiousness for a long time, takes them on fully head on. And he says, I've played that game. And he says in, in chapter 3, he basically lists out his religious resume, all the way that he was Jewish, all the way that he did everything in which was expected of the Jewish people, that he was at the top of the class. He was the best Jew that you could probably come across when it came to Bible knowledge, when it came to zeal for God's word, when it came to adhering all of God's law. He says, I've done it all. But then he says, but you know what? It's all rubbish. It's all trash. The Greek word skubalon compared to knowing Jesus Christ. That the goal of being a Christian is to know Christ and Christ alone. Know the all-surpassing worth of what he has done. And everything that I tried to do to earn my righteousness with God, he says, it's nothing. It's nothing. Because it's not what I do for Christ. It's what Christ has done for me. And so he's engaging in this. Because he knows that the heart of Christianity is at stake the moment that you add any type of works to it. And so Paul is saying, my heart is bent after the heart of Christ. And that is to know that you don't become a Christian because you're good enough. You don't become Christian because you've walked the right religious rules or have, have climbed the right ladder as far as morality or actions or obedience. None of that has actually made you right with Christ. But it's what Jesus did on your behalf. And so what Paul is saying is, I want you, church, to behold Jesus Christ. To look at him. To see the worth of him. And let everything else that you've been trying to find your identity in, let it go to the wayside. He wants the church in Philippi and I think by us by extension to behold the real Jesus. Not the Jesus that we sometimes make up. Not the Jesus that still wants more out of us in order to earn our acceptance. He wants us to know the real Jesus. The one who has all power. The one who uses power not to condemn sinners, even though he, was, he could have justly done that, right? At his first coming, he had every right to condemn sinners. But he used his power to die in the place of sinners at the cross. Right, so Paul's been laying out this gospel centrality of why we believe what we believe. I think simply put, Paul wants to make sure that Christ remains of what it means to be a Christian. That you cannot be a Christian without Christ and Christ alone. And then in verse 13, I'll remind you that Paul says that in order to do that, church, in order to do that, you need to forget what lies behind and strain forward like an athlete to what lies ahead of you. To not lose focus of what Christ has actually saved you to. To not lose heart. To keep moving. To keep trusting him. To keep your eyes fixed upon what matters most in this world. See, Paul has just been a good pastor in chapter 3. Just saying, watch out. Keep focus. Keep your eyes on what is important to you. And that's really why he continues in the end of chapter 3. And you can see that the title of the sermon is Keep Your Eyes on the Cross. Right? Keep your eyes on your Savior. Keep your eyes on what matters most. Keep your, have your mind's eye on what is your ultimate hope. 
And so as I mentioned earlier, when you lay your head down at night, what are you thinking about? We have all kinds of things to think about. But what gives you that hope as you close your eyes? That's what Paul's going today. And so in verse 17, where we find ourselves this morning, he's going to start by giving us somehow direction in doing that. Some more direction. And what does it mean to strive ahead? Forgetting what lies behind. And so he says at the beginning of verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes fixed on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, maybe at first glance, this might sound a little egotistical of Paul, right? He's saying, hey, imitate me. Look at me. But we have to remind ourselves that Paul had actually just spent the preceding verses explaining how he's not perfect, right? That he has not arrived, that he hasn't attained everything that awaits a Christian when Jesus returns. And that is absolute perfection. No more sin. No more tears. It's not because a Christian somehow gets there on his own, but in God's grace, he will bring us there in the end. And so Paul's not saying, hey, imitate me because I have it all together. He's saying, imitate me because I'm following after Christ. If you need somebody to to help you look where to go in the coming days, it's okay to look at me. It's okay to look at me. Paul would say in one of his other letters to the Corinthian church that be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. He's not saying I'm the end all. He's saying I'm trying to imitate Christ. I'm trying to follow him. So follow me as I follow Christ. You'll notice that even Paul doesn't really have this exclusiveness to this imitation, does he? And he says, imitate me according to the example you have in us. Plural. Who's he talking about? Probably Timothy and Epaphroditus who we mentioned earlier about these gospel encouragers who are helping the church in Philippi learn what it means to follow Jesus. Which I'll remind you, that's really our goal as a church, is that we would be a church that would want to follow Jesus individually, but also corporately and help others do the same. That's our goal. That's what we believe is what the Great Commission teaches us. So to go, therefore, and make disciples, how do you make a disciple? What is a disciple? It's a follower of Jesus. So he's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. And there's a whole lot of us doing that, and we need each other. We need each other. And I think that's something that we must recognize as we look at this text, that we absolutely need others to help us follow Christ. That every single one of us, we follow Christ as we're looking at one another and how that actually works. How do you actually follow Christ? Who is it that you are looking at and saying, that brother, that sister is following Christ? And I can learn from them. You're not idolizing them, right? You're not putting them on a pedestal and saying that that they're Jesus, that they're perfect, that they're your Savior. But you're looking at them and saying, hey, you know what? Where they're at right now is where I want to be at in a year. Or maybe five years, maybe ten years. You're not looking at them like they have it all together, but you're looking at them and saying, it seems like... They've gone through things that I'm going through right now. And they seem to be doing pretty well holding on to Christ. Let me look at them. Let me imitate them. What do they do? What do they give their attention to? Right? What are their priorities in life? How do they raise their kids? How do they fortify their marriage? That's something that we all need each other to help do. And by the way, sometimes these people that you're trying to imitate, maybe it's because they're 
They've had more years of being a Christian. That can certainly be the case. Maybe they just have more experience as a Christian. They've walked through some things that you're walking through. Or maybe you've just seen the faithfulness of them, whether they haven't been a Christian for very long, and you're saying, I desire to have that same faithfulness. To, not, to be able to put those certain sins that they've been able to put to death, it seems like. Not perfectly, but certainly faithfully. And you're saying, I want to imitate that. I want to walk that same road. The truth is, church, Christian maturity comes through imitation and observation. It does. It absolutely does. Think of the apostles in the book of Acts, right? When they're walking around, they're preaching, and they come across someone who needs to be healed, right? And they take the time to sit with them and to hear their story, and sometimes by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to actually heal them. Where do you think the apostles learned that from? From walking with Jesus for those years, when Jesus would stop and heal those least, the lost, the ones that nobody else wanted anybody to do with. But Jesus did. See, those apostles learned what it looked like to be ambassadors of Christ by walking with him. And same with us. We learn what it looks like to be ambassadors of Christ by simply following those who have gone before us. We follow Christ and help others do the same. And because Paul is a good pastor, as I mentioned, I think he also gives this church some warning of those who have walked a different path, though. Those who have decided to take it upon themselves to go a different direction. And so if you look at your Bibles, look at verse 18. He tells us that there are those in whom the church knows, right? He's, he's talked about them before in some capacity. And they mean a whole lot to Paul because every person made in the image of God made a whole lot to Paul, as with us. And he says, I have tears in my eyes when I think about them because they are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. By the way, this is the only time in all of the pastoral epistles of Paul in these letters that Paul writes that he ever mentions his own tears. This means a whole lot to Paul. And why is that? Because Paul knows in his seeing and his interacting with those individuals who are walking a path that he desperately does not them, want them to walk down. It's a path of destruction. Now, to be clear, I don't believe that these are Christians in the way that Paul uses this language, that the path that they are walking is one of destruction, one that ends in the depths of hell. That's another way to put it. And the reason is because Scripture is very clear that if you have come to know and believe and repent and trust in Christ and His work on the cross for you, you are saved. There is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ. Now, does that mean that Christians won't struggle? No, not at all. But it means that if you have believed that your end is not in destruction, your end is in paradise, and God is going to use His graciousness and His mercy along the way, and so what I think that Paul is talking about, these individuals that Paul is mentioning is individuals that maybe have professed Christ with their lips, but have denied him with their actions. And Paul is saying it hurts the most. It hurts the most to have individuals in your life who have professed faith, but it seems like they did not possess it. 
and their actions were indications of what they truly believed. And Paul gives basically three areas where he has observed this. And we need to pay close attention. Close attention because if this is, this is where the human heart wants to go. This is where it wants to, it defaults to go in our depravity. And so he says, first, their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. Now, what does that mean? Well, it could mean that, and speaking about the Judeers, that, that they were so strict on this, this mosaic dietary restrictions that they were basing their whole acceptance in front of God based on what they ate or what they did not eat. And Paul is just making mention that their belly seems to be their final judge, to be their God. Now, that may be true, and I think it's certainly a part of this, but I think it's more than that. I think what Paul is mentioning, saying is that their God is their body. It's what they feel. It's their sensuality. It's their experience physically in this world is their God. And essentially what, what, they're, what they're saying is what mattered most to them was not what the, the perfect, designer, holy, just, almighty God has said about their bodies, but what they feel in any given moment. In church, how much are we discipled to think this way? How much in our own, right, cultural context here in the Carson Valley or just living in America or living in, in, the, in the century that we live in, is this the predominant tool of discipleship? That whatever feels good to you, do that. That is really the true manifestation of you. That's your true self. Whatever is deep inside of you that you want to do, that's what you should do, right? It's your gut is your God. That's your true self. And what the Bible is saying is, that, no, no, no. It's like, we need to listen to our bodies. Don't hear me that wrong on that. We absolutely, God has created us physical beings for a reason. We need to have self-awareness of our bodies, but we can't let our bodies or our emotions or our sensualities or our pleasures in this world be our ultimate authority or be our ultimate God. We're being discipled to think that way. And Paul is saying, it's destruction. It's destruction. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we understand that. And we know that. And we know, I know many of us, including myself, we've tried to walk that road, right? We've tried to go down that and say, I'll just give into whatever I want and see how it goes. And Paul says it ends in destruction. It ends in destruction. Secondly, Paul also says that they glory in their shame. They glory in their shame. That the things that they give themselves to, right, the things that they pride themselves in doing, when it's typically even against what God has created them to do and to be, what they've decided to do instead of hiding it, they'll glory in it. Right? They'll put it up. They'll magnify it. And they'll want everybody else to join in to glorifying this. Like, isn't this good? Isn't this right? Don't you want to celebrate this with me? Don't you want to glory in this with me? It's also something that is, we're surrounded in, right? That's the air that we breathe. And Paul is saying, it's destruction. It's destruction because you're glorying in shame. And he says it with tears in his eyes. That's not what the gospel of Jesus Christ came to proclaim. 
It's actually the very opposite. Church, do you know that Jesus died not so that you would glory in your shame, but that your shame would be covered by the righteousness of Christ? Not so it would be said that this is you, but said that's, that, it, that was you, but Christ came and has made you new in him. We want to glory in Christ, not shame, even though we all have some. But the good news for those of us who are in Christ this morning, right, have believed in what he's done, that shame is covered. That shame is remembered no more in the eyes of our Savior. It was paid for. And ultimately, Paul says it by summing it up, I believe, in saying that their minds are set on earthly things. That they live for this world and this world alone. Practically, that I think this plays out where you live like this world is as best as it's going to get. So why not just drink and be merry and pretending as if this is heaven? And the sad reality is for those who ultimately walk down this path, never trusting in Christ, this is as close to heaven as they will ever get. And Paul, as I mentioned before, this, is not, this isn't delight, Paul. To say these things. He says it brings tears to my eyes. To think that there's one person. That would want this. And go for it. That's why Paul is planning. right? That's why he's a pastor. right? That's why he's a church planter. He says I don't want this for anybody. right? He shares the heart of Christ. When Jesus doesn't desire anybody. Would perish. He doesn't delight in anybody going to hell. I believe it's even what Jesus would say when he would say his rhetorical question. When he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So church, I think we have to ask ourselves after we read kind of just some tough language that we see in the Bible of what is it that I'm glorying in? What is it that my mind is set upon? What is it that I find my ultimate sense of identity and purpose in? Is it the things of this world? Or is it the one who came for me and made me his own? We have to ask ourselves that. Not, not because we're, it's fun to do that. Right? It's not because it's fun to do that maybe late at night. But it's what it leads to. It's what it leads you to remember about your hope. It reminds you that your hope is not in your body. It's not in your shame. It's not in the things of this earth. It's in something far much better. And that's where Paul goes. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 20, church. This is where it gets really good. And he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. That word citizenship... It's in, in, in Greek, it's a word that communicates that you're a group of people who live in a foreign land, but ultimately you do not belong there in the end. That you may be living somewhere that's not your home country for a certain time, for a certain reason, but you are citizens of somewhere else. And that's where Paul goes, that you are citizens in heaven. So he's telling the church in Philippi, yeah, you may be in Rome, or have a Roman colony around you in Philippi. 
But that is not where your citizenship lies. It lies in heaven. You belong somewhere else, Christian. And so if you sometimes feel like this world is not your home, it's because it's not. It's not. You're called to be here, right? Acts 17 tells us that God has allotted the times and the places for every single one of us to live. So if you find yourself this morning at Carson Valley Bible Church, which you all do, it's because God has decreed that, that you would be here right now for his purposes and his glory and also your joy. So it says your citizenship is in heaven. But it's not just we're just looking for a new home, but we're reminding ourselves of not just where our home is, but also who awaits us there who we belong to there. Look at the end of verse 20. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's not just where we're going, but who's there. That's the glory of heaven. That's the glory of our Savior. And Paul, I think, actually mentions these specific terms in talking about Jesus, not just because he's trying to be impressive, right, with laying out these full titles or offices of Jesus, but actually very intentionally. Because as a church in Philippi and as us today, we can forget about the God who we worship. And so we, we just walk through just the names that we see here, that we await a Savior. So Jesus is not just some man He's not just some God-man who created the world and said, good luck. But someone who created the world and saw the destruction and the depravity and our own bent towards walking away from him. Our own prone to wander and said, I'm coming to save you because you cannot save yourselves. That's the God who we worship. A savior. Not just a ruler, but a savior. Right? Not just a perfect, holy, righteous, almighty God, even though that's all true, but a Savior also. He's also Lord. This is the Lord. Now, this was a declaration of God's sovereignty and his royalty. In this day, in the first century church, when you would say something is Lord, it was a political statement of what had the highest authority in your life. And in this context where Paul is writing, anywhere where there was basically Roman control, which was basically all of the known world at this moment, the common phrase in that day was, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. But Paul is saying, no, 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 church. He may be powerful in an earthly sense, but there is someone above him, and that's Jesus. Jesus is Lord. He is sovereign. He is in control. If you want to be political, start there. Jesus is Lord. May his kingdom be our highest allegiance. Lastly, he's Jesus, right? I remind you that the name Jesus, although it was a common name in this time period, it could be translated like Joshua or maybe like a Joe in our, our context. It actually meant something. It meant something, and it really meant God saves or Jehovah's salvation. So even Jesus having the name of Jesus was a declaration of what God was doing, what he was doing. And then it says that Jesus is Christ. hope you guys know Christ is not um, Jesus' last name. 
So I, I did not know this for a long time, to be quite honest, growing up. But Christ was also a declaration of who Jesus was. Christ uh, means the anointed one or Messiah or Messiah. So it's Jesus, the Messiah, or Jesus, the one. And here's why that's good news for us. It means we don't, we're not waiting for another. Right? We're not waiting for somebody else to come. We're not waiting for somebody else to atone for us. We're not waiting for somebody else to live a life that we couldn't live or to die the death we deserved. We don't have to wait for anybody else. And we also don't have to ever pretend like there's another way. Jesus Christ is the way. He is the one. That's what Christ means. That's what Messiah means. The one whom all of humanity has been waiting for has come in Christ has come in Jesus. I, I don't know about you guys, but I think it's pretty good news. I think it's pretty good news this Sunday morning. But it gets better. It gets better. Paul reminds the church then, after knowing who is awaiting them in heaven, in even some of the practical, tangible realities of that future day. Look at verse 21. Speaking of Jesus still. He says, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul says that the lowly body in which you inhabit now will be a glorious body at the day of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes back for you, Christian, is that your body physically will be transferred from this lowly, sin-filled, sick-filled body to a glorious, perfect body. Now, I'll be honest with you guys. I just turned 32 this week. I'm not going to pretend like I know all of the realities of having a lowly body. I've been relatively healthy most of my life, and I'm thankful for that. But I know that there's many people in this church whether just from age, whether it's from sickness, or just the consequences of sin in this world, you look at this verse and you go, Amen, Jesus, may it be true today. I want this glorious body. My lowly body is failing me, and I feel it every time I move or try to do something. In church, what I'm telling you is you can have hope. It's okay if your body feels lowly. You don't have to pretend like it is a glorious body now. You can look forward to that glorious body to come. And you can have hope in that. You can pray that. You can thank Jesus that this is a done deal. This is a reality at some point. Right? And what a day that's going to be. That every single one of us will have bodies, physical bodies, that will never ever have any kind of sickness again will never be tempted to be the object of worship in our life will never have even an ability to glory in itself it will be a glorious body in which jesus demonstrated that reality when he rose from the grave physically now i don't know honestly in the scripture there it doesn't teach you know what that's totally going to look like but we can trust the words of Paul when he says it's going to be glorious. So have hope, Christian. Take heart in this world. 
keep your eyes on the cross, right? As you're forgetting what lies behind and you're trying to focus in on what actually matters to you, Paul is saying, keep your eyes on your Savior. Keep your eyes on what awaits you. Press on. Strain forward. Because for the Christian, this is as close to hell as we get. We await what's awaiting for us is so much better. And that should encourage us, every single one of us as we walk out of this room today. That we have good news coming. We have good news which we remember in Christ and his work on the cross. And we also have good news coming with Jesus' return. And lastly, how can we have the ultimate confidence in all of that? How can this really be true? Well, that's what Paul ends in verse 21. When he says, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Church, we at some times, just in our, in our own imperfect selves, right? Our, our own ways that we're still trying to grow in our trust and our faith in Christ. Sometimes we can, we can, quite honestly, we can say, I don't know, Jesus, if you're powerful enough to do this. What seems to be happening in this world, what seems to be happening in me, seems like it's a great power that nothing can overcome. And we forget about the power that relies inside our Savior, the one who subjects all things to himself, including every single thing we hope for in the world to come. Everything is under his domain. He has power over it all. And if he has power over it all, he can be trusted. Right? He can be, we can lay down at night saying, I can trust you because all things are under your footstool, Jesus. It all belongs to you. And he can take our hearts who are so bent right on looking inward or focusing on things of this world and this earth. And he can say, no, I want you to look at me. I want you to trust me. I'm going to bind your heart to me because I know what's going to happen in the end. You don't have to. All you have to know is I do. And all things are subject to me. Church, this is the God we worship. I hope you know that this is not a puny Christ. This is a powerful Christ. This is a powerful Savior. This is a powerful Messiah. And so as we end our time in the world, in the word, rather, we got to ask ourselves, what is driving us? Where is our mind's eye fixed to today? Fixed to. Now, for those of you who are Christians, that road does not end in destruction. But certainly the consequences of sin and the temptations of sin are all around us. Paul says, don't walk down that road. Don't do it. I've seen too many people, and quite honestly, as a pastor, I've seen way too many people in my life say, I know what the Bible says I know how he lays out to follow him and what it looks like to be obedient to him. And I know what God says will bring me the most joy in this world. But I think he might be wrong when it comes to me. I'm going to be different. I'm going to be able to give myself to these things. And it's really going to be all fine in the end. And church, let me tell you, every time someone decides to walk down that road, there's dire consequences because of it. I've seen too many marriages fail I've seen too much heartbroke. I've seen too many kids just deal with the consequences of sin as they grow up because we're all tempted to decide we can walk our own path and not deal with the consequences of it. 
I can be different. And so Paul's plea to the church in Philippi, my plea to you is, let's help each other follow Christ. Let's do this together. Right? If you think for a moment that somebody is watching you and imitating you, where are you wanting to lead them? To more love and dependency on Christ or dependency on somebody else or something else? What are your eyes fixed upon? And ultimately, if you're not sure if you know Christ this morning, if you're not quite sure where you're at, this is where I'm, I'm, I'm calling you to believe and trust in him. Maybe when you read these words of Paul in this path of destruction of worshiping your own body or glorying in your shame, right? Or having your mind set on earthly things and you go, uh-oh, I think that might be me. Guess what? God knows. That's why you're here. That's why you're listening. And he's saying, but there's something better than that. That path of destruction is not today, but the hope of the gospel is today. And you can trust him and believe him. And what awaits you is what awaits every Christian. And that's our citizenship in heaven. And that's that lowly body being transformed into a glorious body. Church, isn't it good news that he's not done with us? Isn't it good news that we have in Christ? Isn't it good news that we have in our citizenship that we can live in this moment right now? in the culture, in the time, in the neighborhoods, in the workplaces that we live in right now because we are citizens in heaven. And what a gift that is. God doesn't make any mistakes, church. That's all I got. Let's pray. And then we'll respond in a couple different ways. Well, Father, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the ways that you have allowed us as a people just to be able to know you, to be able to see the warning signs that, God, that you're not indifferent to where our sin takes us, but that you're a God who wanted to be a savior, and so you came, and we can worship you as such. And God, I pray for every single person in the room this morning. God, that we would all know you more, that we would trust you more, maybe for some of us for the first time, truthfully. And we would just be able to respond with worship and obedience, not because we're trying to earn anything from you, but because we have everything in you. And may our hearts remember that as we walk out. It's in your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.